Hi, folks. The fight against cancer continues, and not only can you help, but you can win yourself a very, very cool prize. Here's the deal. Marcus and EJ Strickland, they're twin brothers. Uh, Marcus is a saxophone player. EJ is a drummer. They both have just released new CDs, and they are doing a double CD release party at the famed Joe's Pub in New York City this Friday, August 21st. So if you are listening to this show on the day that it is released, which is August 17th, and on that day only, you have until 10 p.m. tonight to make a donation to my Livestrong Cancer Ride. Just go to thejazzsession.com. You'll see all the Livestrong links on the left side. There's a big banner ad and a scrolling list of names. Click on one of those to donate, and for every $5 you donate, you get a raffle ticket. And I will be drawing those prizes tomorrow... Tuesday, the 18th. So, again, the concert is this Friday, the 21st of August, 2009, and you need to donate by 10 p.m. tonight, Monday, August 17th. You'll get two tickets to the show, you'll get two autographed CDs, one from each brother, and you'll get a meet-and-greet, a chance to hang out with Marcus and EJ at the gig at Joe's Pub this Friday. So remember, donate by 10 p.m. tonight. Now, if you don't win the Strickland Prize, don't worry about it because your donation will still count toward all the drawings next week, which include tickets for Kenny Barron and Mulgrew Miller, Dave Brubeck, autographed CDs, LPs, all kinds of cool stuff. So for the Strickland Prize, it's donate by tonight, Monday the 17th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, I should say. And uh, for everything else, just get your donations in by this Friday, okay? Thank you. Thank you for your help in fighting cancer. I am so close to my goal that it is easily visible from where I sit here in my house in Albany. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is Hammond B3 organist Gene Ludwig. From his album Hands On, here's Louie and Jazz.
My guest is Hammond B3 organist Gene Ludwig. He's had uh, quite a storied career performing with many jazz greats, and we'll get to that. But first, uh, Gene, thanks so much for being here and taking some time to appear on the jazz session. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. You are, uh, I, I think I actually... Uh, really became familiar with you kind of in the modern era with the album that you recorded with Red Holloway and Plaz Johnson, which I remember playing the heck out of and uh, and really enjoying. And seeing your name on there caused me to, to say, I need to find more Gene Ludwig. And there is more out there going all the way back uh, to the 60s uh, and an affiliation with uh, another saxophonist uh, who just about everybody knows named Sonny Stitt. Can you talk about uh, how you first met Sonny? Well, Sonny uh, was working with Don Patterson and Billy James. Uh, Don was another uh, uh, excellent organ organist, and uh, of course Billy James, drummer. And uh, I had heard Sonny on the air for uh, years before I joined him, you know. And uh, I became uh, a fan of his, you know. And when John, uh, Don, and Billy uh, left the trio, uh, I was working with a drummer who lives in Lansing, Michigan now. Randy Gillespie, he uh, got uh, wind that Sonny was looking for a rhythm section, and he called me and said, uh, would you be interested in working with Sonny? I said, sure. So he uh, he called Sonny, and uh, we hooked up. I think our first job was at uh, Paul's Mall, uh, the jazz workshop in Boston, Massachusetts, and that was, I think, uh, November of 69. So, Gene, was there an audition, or did you just, uh, you guys... Hooked up on the gig and decided oh, to see we, how it went. No, it was it was a done deal. We hooked up and and uh, uh, the second job we went to was at a place called the Club Baron in New York City, and we worked opposite Cannonball Adderley for two weeks, and that was the biggest thrill of my life. That must have been amazing. Can just talk a little bit more about that experience. What was the what was that scene like? What were those rooms like that you were playing in in those days? Well, they were uh, more or less lounges, you know, and uh, the seating capacity, I would say, uh, maybe 200 people. And uh, we were there, at the, in those days, we were there like six nights a week, seven nights a week. And uh, uh, that was that was the uh, the going thing during the 60s and the 50s and 60s. It was all six and seven nights a week at the same place. Sometimes we'd get uh, two weeks and, and then we move on to the next town. And was that multiple shows a night sometimes? Oh, we we had sets. Like uh, my first time I encountered New York City uh, was in 1962, and we worked 10:20 till four o'clock. So it was 10:20 uh, p.m. till four o'clock a.m. Right? right. <laughs> did six six sets, and uh, usually on the uh, 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 on the club circuit, it was all sets. We'd work uh, nine or two, and uh, maybe ten, ten to three. But it was all we do like. Uh, Maybe an hour set, take a half hour off. We do about four or five sets a night. Now, what kind of people, Gene, would you get out for a gig at 3 o'clock in the morning? Well, I was amazed in New York City because, you know, being from Pittsburgh, I was I was used to getting off at 2 and having them roll up the sidewalk, so to speak, at 2 o'clock in the morning. But when I hit New York and we were at the playing at 3 o'clock and 3.30 in the morning and people were still coming in, off the street party and and it's just like it was nine o'clock at night and I thought I thought to myself this is amazing you know but uh, 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 New York is New York as uh, they say. What was uh, Sonny Stitt like to work with? Oh, he was wonderful. He was one of my mentors. You know, I learned a lot of music from Sonny and uh, a lot about the business also. And uh, 
he was sort of notorious for being hard to work with uh, back in those days, but uh, I found it very, uh, very relaxing working with him. And uh, like I said, it was quite an education for me. Now, I I want to I do want to talk about the present, but before we do that, I want to mine the past a little bit more just to make sure that folks know, you know, kind of uh, where you came from and how you came up. Can you talk about the first time that you that you heard or saw a Hammond B three organ uh, jazz performance and and what impact it had on you? Well, the first time I uh, heard organ was in the radio uh, back before television in the late forties. Uh, they had a sitcom uh, uh, called Beulah. It was a uh, it was a sitcom about uh, a housekeeper, and there was a swing organist they used as a pad on that show. It came on once a week, and uh, uh, I fell in love with the sound of the organ then, you know, and that was around 1948. And uh, and it seems like just about every old-time radio show, I mean, everything from The Shadow to all oh, the little yeah. family comedies had a had an organ player as the only accompaniment half the time, right? Right. A, a friend of mine just uh, interviewed, I don't know if she's still living, but she was the original organist on The Shadow, and uh, he interviewed her down in Florida. She was 95 years old. Are you old. kidding? That's Boy. right. So, uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. To, but So you first but, heard organ on, on the radio, and then right, uh, right. what and happened then next? When I, when I came into high school, you know, like, uh, Bill Dog was very popular. You know, he came out with Honky Tonk, you know, and I really fell in love with the sound of the organ. And, and uh, I had heard Bill Davis and Milt Buckner and... Uh, when I first heard Jimmy Smith play in '57, uh, it was he, he was doing organ more like uh, playing like a piano, pianistic sound, you know, with the, with a single line where where all the other guys were soloing with the uh, uh, soloing with the uh, block chords, and Jimmy he was he's so fluid with his playing that I thought, thought to myself, this is amazing. It does really turn me turn me around, you know, and that's that, that's when I said, well, that's what I want. And subsequently, I went. I bought my first Hammond in 1958. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your first Hammond was not a B3, right? right? It was an M100, a small organ. You know, that's the only thing that I could afford. You know, I think I paid, used I paid $800, but I played that for about a year. And then I uh, graduated, so to speak, to uh, to a larger organ. I got a uh, church model, or C3, you know, and 
and I've been playing Hammond equipment the uh, ever since uh, well over 50 years now. Now, I used to own a C3, and uh, I once had to move it up two flights of stairs in a in a warehouse where it was being stored, and I got to say that one experience of moving it was all the organ moving experience I'll ever need. <laughs> and you have been carrying an organ around to gigs for we're coming up on sixty years now. It seems like uh, you know um, I started <laughs> I started my moving uh, uh, career I think around fifty eight or fifty eight when I first brought my first organ. But uh, they have uh, what they call rolling carries now. It's a it's a device that you put around strap around the organ and you can. Uh, lift it up on wheels, and uh, you can wheel that thing. Uh, matter of fact, I had a, a gig in New York where I wheeled the organ up in the middle of Broadway because there was no room on the sidewalk. So I, I was out in the middle of the uh, middle of Broadway wheeling an organ up to to the gig. Listen, that thing may be on wheels, but they still weigh a ton. I don't oh, absolutely, <laughs> four hundred. I think four hundred fifty pounds. Yeah, that, that that's not a piccolo that you're wheeling there, my friend. That's right. You for, you saw Jimmy Smith. You decided, okay, this is what I want to do. And uh, at that time, had you had already designs on a career as a professional musician? Well, not really. My mother uh, wanted me to be a concert pianist, but uh, uh, unfortunately, I got the rhythm and blues bug when I came out of uh, uh, came out of high school. You know, and I went on to college, but. Uh, I majored in uh, uh, physical science and minor in mathematics. I was going to be a physics teacher and, uh, and minor in math. And uh, uh, I came out of college after two years, you know, and uh, I was playing on the weekends, you know, or whatever I could get on piano, you know, before I started on organ. And uh, I had enough college that I got into civil engineering. And I worked on a building here in Pittsburgh. I was on that for 14 months as a civil engineer. And that... Uh, that finished up in 1959. So one morning after after uh, the job finished up, they of course laid me off. I decided I wanted to uh, you know give the music thing a shot. You know, and um, uh, I flipped the coin, and this actually happened. I flipped the coin, you know, and they said, "Heads, I'll uh, I'll go, uh, you know, pursue an engineering thing, you know, and uh, or, or tails, I'll I'll, I'll I'll be a musician." It came down tails. And that's the way it's been for, well, I've made my complete living, you know, uh, with this uh, playing uh, for 50 years now. It'll be 50 years in uh, November. Now, in the early 60s, when you were uh, really striking out uh, on your own as a musician, there were actually kind of Hammond organ rooms, right? I mean, clubs that kind of specialized in that music, is that right? Well, most most uh, most musicians, organ players, they carried their own instrument, you know, because... Uh, everybody has a uh, set that's different. I've sat down to different different organs, and, and uh, they don't seem any different to me. But a lot of people were just, you know, they they were uh, more or less persnickety about, you know, having their own instrument. But uh, all the rooms that I played, you know, like the Key Club, the Hurricane, you know, they were all uh, uh, acclimated to the organ sound. So uh, yes, uh, that that was the thing of the day. That was the instrument of the day. And you would often, uh, you had fairly long runs every year in some of the same clubs, right? Where you'd play for, for six weeks, eight weeks in the same place, coming back year after year, is that the case? Well, uh, the first long run we did was in Atlantic City in 1962. Uh, I was working out of uh, an agency out of New York, Queen Booking, and uh, Ruth Bone, who was a president, uh, she booked us into Atlantic City for a weekend. 
and uh, it was Mother's Day of 1962. I'm sorry, 63. And uh, we opened with uh, Dizzy Gillespie and James Moody and Kenny Byron and uh, Chris White. I think Rudy Collins was in that band. And the uh, management, the owner, liked us so much, he kept us all summer. So subsequently, I had a chance to work that whole year up until uh, the Miss America pageant, that, that, whole, that whole summer. I had a chance to work with, uh, like, Ahmed Jamal, uh, Ramsey Lewis, Jack McDuff, uh, Jimmy McGriff, uh, uh, who else? Oh, there was quite a few in there that summer. I mean, for for uh, an, an organ fan and a guy really only a, a few years into a professional career, that must have been kind of like a kid in a candy store time, wasn't it? Oh, abs- absolutely. Uh, uh, I was just getting started, although I had recorded, you know, a couple things in, you know, and uh, I always surrounded myself with the best cast that I could get, you know, like Randy Gillespie and Jerry Bird, that was our trio. And uh, uh, we had a wonderful trio. So everywhere we went, uh, the people, we just grew on the people, and they liked us. So uh, we were very fortunate that way. Now, you've uh, you've talked about uh, the, the meeting with Sonny Stitt and then going on uh, to perform uh, with Sonny. The next kind of... Uh, Big meeting that you had with a a name that everybody will recognize with, with Arthur Prysock. Is that correct? Right. Uh, I ran into Arthur. I was working with, uh, matter of fact, in 1960. I hadn't even formed my group yet. Uh, I joined a band. That's where I met Randy Gillespie. There was a Gene Barr and Jimmy Landers, a tenor saxophone and guitarist. We had an R&B group, and we got booked into a, a club in, uh, oh, gee, where was it, Canton, Ohio. Arthur had just come out with, uh, he had recorded with a Buddy uh, Buddy Johnson band, and he was doing a single then. He wasn't even carrier band, so uh, he came into the club, uh, and we worked a weekend together, and that was around 1960. And from that day on, we kept in contact, you know, and, uh, oh, I think it was like 13, 14 years later, that uh, he was he was changing up his band. He, he came through Pittsburgh, and he says, I, I are you interested in traveling? And I said, sure. He said, well, come on, come on to New York. And uh, he says, well, you can join us in New York. So uh, I think the five spot was the very first job that I did with Arthur, and that was in 73. Thank you. 
around the seventies, what was the scene like for a for a Hammond organ player? Was it uh, was it as hot as it had been in the sixties? Not quite. You know, uh, things were I don't know uh, were were mellowing no, mellowing out, but everything was going to the uh, towards the rock thing. You know, and a uh, uh, lot of lot of a uh, lot of uh, clubs were changing over to. Uh, to uh, rock and roll, and uh, even the rhythm and blues thing was 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 taking a kick. So uh, the uh, the the organ rooms from the ten years before that they were they were they were just drying up. So what did that mean for you uh, as a player? What did you have to do to? to make ends meet if there were fewer places uh, that, that catered to the kind of music you were used well, to playing. That's one of the reasons I joined Arthur, because, you know, like, uh, he was working steady, you know, and uh, uh, had a chance to uh, uh, see a lot more of the country than I had previously, and uh, it was wonderful. We worked Chicago, you know, and we worked uh, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, I had, Texas, I, all over the country with Arthur, you know. And uh, I left that band and uh, came back home, and that's when, that's when I got into the lounge circuit with the Ramadas and the uh, holidays, uh, holiday inns, you know. But they were all working six six nights a week, and I did that for quite a few years. Now, at some point, you, uh, although you of course started on piano, you started working piano back into your repertoire. Is that right? Yeah, around 1980, 81, you know, like uh, the call for the organ was getting uh, you know, far and few between. So uh, I decided, you know, like uh, I, I got a call from uh, from a few bass players wanted to know if I had, you know, if I was into piano as much as I was organ as playing the aggressive, you know. And I said, well, uh, you listen, tell me what you think, you know. And I went on a couple of jobs and they said, oh, yeah, man. He says, you play, you play very aggressively, you know, and uh, that really got me started with the uh, working with uh, bass players. Do you play your own uh, your own bass when you play the organ, Gene? Right, I, I have a technique where I've worked out between the pedals and the left hand, and uh, it's worked for me all these years. Now we should say for anybody who is not familiar with the Hammond organ that it has two keyboards, and then uh, it also has a set of pedals uh, that you can play with your feet that play bass notes and some organ players even some of the most famous ones uh, don't didn't play bass they had bass players in their band and they would just play with their hands now did you uh, always from the beginning incorporate the pedals in uh, all the playing? time i never I, I never even till today uh, i uh, if a bass player comes on a job and i'm playing organ I, i'm sorry you know like like uh, uh, i'll lay out if you want to play uh, uh, if i have a guitar player now i'll let the if it's going to be a jam session i'll let the guitar player play with the bass you know and i'll just lay out because and the, it clashes so much uh, see the two of those instruments are uh, are very deep you know the the organ has a very deep timber to it you know and so does the bass so it clashes I've interviewed a bunch of organists over the years, and it still always amazes me that you are effectively an entire band in your own limbs. I mean, you have your feet are carrying the bass line. Your left hand, much of the time, is is comping or playing chords. You're improvising in your right hand. How is it possible to keep all that straight in your brain at one time? <laughs> you become a machine. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's, it's like playing drums. You know, I look at a drummer playing, you know, and he's using like a cymbal ride with his right hand, you know, and he's playing paradiddles or what have you with his left hand and a snare drum. And then he's got the sock going uh, all the time on two and four, and then he's exiting with his bass pedal, you know, and that's got all his, 
That's the same thing with an organist, you know, like you have the right foot for the expression, uh, left foot for the bass, and uh, left hand, where you, you can carry the left, give your leg a rest, and carry the bass line with your hand, or you can uh, chord with your left, and of course you've got your melody and everything, uh, comping and everything with your right hand. Yeah, sure. It sounds easy. I mean, the uh, you know the thing that not to take anything away from the the skill that it takes to play the drum set well, but the difference is that the drummer can't really play a wrong note. Whereas you have to keep you're keeping bass, harmony, and melody and melodic improvisation and all together at one for, time. You're forgetting about time too. That's you right. Know, yeah, yeah. You're, you've got the time to take care of too. So uh, you've you've got your plate. Your plate is full. So, uh, how important is the drummer to that whole setup? Well, the drummer has to be a good pocket drummer to play with a play with an organist. I've worked with a few drums, you know, that were uh, they either play behind the beat or on top of the beat, and it's very hard to uh, pocket with them. But uh, for the most part, uh, uh, the drummers that I've been fortunate to work with, you know, they they uh, they like the sound of the organ. They like the groove of the feeling. So uh, they they fall right in there, and uh, it's, it's been quite an experience, you know. And uh, for the like I said, for the most part, uh, everybody's been excellent. What was it about Randy Gillespie that made him special in the beginning? Well, Randy's an all-around drummer. Uh, when I first heard him play, like uh, oh hell, let's see, 1959, 60, when we locked up. Uh, he he was cooking then, you know. He's playing, you know. His timing was great, you know. And he's uh, he's he's one of the heaviest uh, swingers I've ever worked with, you know. Uh, uh, and when I say swing, you know, I put him in the same category as like Max or or Art Blakey. Uh, those guys were heavy hitters as far as swing goes, you know. And and Randy, uh, that's the first thing that that really impressed me the way he swung, you know, and uh, and and made me swing. So you know, we just we just locked it in. From my vantage point, the, the jazz organ has undergone a real resurgence in the last maybe 10 years or so. Does it look the same from where you're sitting? Well, yes, yeah, since 1990, you know, like, uh, uh, it, it had a resurgence uh, due to uh, some of the younger organists coming out with uh, with records, you know, and getting a lot of airplay. And uh, since then, there's, uh, there's quite a few youngsters coming out today, and uh, some of them are quite good. Do you feel like uh, you're kind of getting a, a second bite at the apple um, in terms of being able to, to play more, to record more, um, like you're getting a chance to do kind of the thing that you excel at again after having to, you know, just cobble together whatever gigs there were in the days when the organ wasn't as popular? Let's see. I think I recorded in 1980. That was for Joe Phil's uh, on Muse, and I had recorded uh, for 18 years. And I, I did an album, and I shopped it around, and finally Leaf picked it up uh, that was in 1998, and I've done five, six, no, six projects for them in, in the last 10 years. I still get a kick out of recording, although it can be very, uh, it's hard on me anymore because uh, I'm not getting any younger. So uh, I think uh, uh, recording-wise, you know, I just try to pace myself and, and maybe do maybe an album a year instead of uh, before I was like doing two or three and get, putting them in the can. Listen, you remembered the date of your first gig in Atlantic City. I'm not exactly sure what I had for breakfast this morning. I'll tell so, you exactly uh, when it was. It was Mother's Day weekend. We had to do some research on this. Uh, 1963, when was Mother's Day? It was the first week of May. And uh, because we were there, we opened Friday, we played Saturday, and Mother's Day was on Sunday. 
So, and Dizzy, we worked opposite Dizzy for those three days. Now, when so you that, say that was it, when you say worked opposite a band, what what does that mean exactly? Well, we were in a club where we play an hour, and then we'd have an hour off, and the uh, and the other group would come on and play an hour, and there was uh, we do uh, uh, two sets a piece a night, and then on the weekends, like if they were there all week, and we had what they call breakfast shows, we would do three sets a night, and uh, sometimes I I didn't get out of the club until five o'clock in the morning. And then what what was the deal with the patrons? Did they have to pay admission for each of the different acts, or how, how did that work for folks who no? They paid the one one uh, one uh, kind of a cover charge. One cover charge. They could stay there all night, you know. And uh, uh, there was two rooms right up the street. Uh, uh, Pop Williams had the and the, the Club Harlem, and uh, he was bringing in the bigger acts like Sammy Davis, you know. And I saw Sam Cook up there, and. Uh, uh, he had two bands, Chris Colombo and uh, Willis Jackson. They alternated in the front bars. And they had two bars in the front, so uh, uh, two stages in the front. So uh, they would alternate. And uh, I can't remember the club on the other side of the street. That's where I met Bill Davis. And I, when I met Bill, that was 1962 when I was working there, uh, I asked him if he had... Uh, done the radio things that, that when I grew up, you know, he said, no, nah, that was Buddy Cole. And I said, well, uh, I'm a big fan of his now. And uh, over the years, I, I had a chance to hear Buddy play on the air, you know, some records. And he was a fantastic player, too. Is there kind of a, uh, I can't think of a word other than fraternity, which is unfair because there are well-known women who play the organ, too. But is there kind of a, a, a family of organ players? Are organ players, do you stay in contact with other organ players and you guys trade trade ideas and tricks and experiences and that kind of thing? On the contrary, I got to say this, you know, I found out during my whole career that that is, that is one instrument that everybody tries to hide what they're doing, you know, and uh, uh, there's so much, I'm going to say it like it is, I'm going to say, uh, there's so much pity jealousy between the players out there, it always has been, you know, that, uh, oh, I can do this and you can't, you know, this and that, you know, and they'll, they'll show off, you know, and they pay a thousand notes, you know, and then uh, somebody will come up there and play one note and make it swing, you know. But uh, uh, as a fraternity, no, I can't say that there is a fraternity. So it's more akin to the guy covering the valves on his trumpet with a handkerchief so no one can see what finger it is he's using. <laughs> yeah, <and that's>... exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, I, can, I, can, I can sit down and listen to an organist or a pianist, you know, and uh, if I hear the record enough, you know, like, uh, I, can, I can really, uh, you know, more or less copy or, or understand uh, what they're doing. I talked to John Coltrane years ago, and he says, well... If you can hear it, you can play it. So he's he's quite right there, or he was quite right. Did you ever play uh, opposite his band, Gene? No, never played opposite John. You know, and uh, I, I think I think my style of playing. Well, I don't know. That would have been, that would have to uh, to be seen. You know, uh, I don't know if the, the type of music that he was playing. You know, I mean, he was he was so far advanced uh, that. Uh, I don't think that we could hold a candle to him, you know, uh, but uh, I would have I given him a shot if I would ever had a chance, you know. Is uh, is it still fun for you to, to play this music, uh, even all these years and all these gigs and all these road trips later? Oh, yes. I was at a jam session last night. Matter of fact, there's a fellow and, uh, on the other side of town. He has a, a Wednesday night get-together and uh, has a wonderful uh, Yamaha piano up there, and... Uh, uh, we had two bass players, uh, three tenor saxophones, 
two drummers, a guitarist, and uh, we we just I was out there for a couple of hours last night, you know, and uh, it's uh, it's it's a labor of love because unfortunately, with the jazz scene today, especially here in Pittsburgh. There's hardly any place to work, you know, and you got to you got to uh, play. You can sit down and practice by yourself for hours and hours, but it's not the same thing as sitting in with a band, you know, and listening to another guy playing or a, ma- a woman playing. You know what? Uh, and it's it's just uh, uh, it's just phenomenal. Well, Gene Ludwig, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you, and uh, I really thank you for for sharing your stories uh, and your music with us, and I thank you for being here on the jazz session. Well, thank you, Jason. organist Gene Ludwig from his album Hands On. You've been listening to The Jazz Session, the weekly jazz interview show. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, mp3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. And if you're on Facebook, there's a group there for The Jazz Session, and I give away music at that group, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet, their most recent album, Serious Respect, and many others online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed all of the various logos for all of the various iterations of The Jazz Session. Thank you so much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
Thank you for listening. Bye.